Welcome to Web3 Galaxy Brain. My name is Nicholas. Each week, I sit down with some of the brightest people building Web3 to talk about what they're working on right now. My guests today are Chris Chang and George Datskos, founders of Ghostlogs. Ghostlogs is a new platform that allows developers to fork contracts on various EVMs, inject their own custom events and view functions, and then interact with them via RPC, Dune Analytics, or Flipside. In this episode, Chris and George explain how their journey doing MEV on Binance Smart Chain and building NFT loan aggregator Snow Genesis led them to build Ghostlogs. We also discuss EIP 7571, another potentially compatible approach to moving event logs out of transaction execution. It was great getting to talk to Chris and George about the emerging trend separating events from transactions. I hope you enjoy the show. As always, this show is provided as entertainment and does not constitute legal, financial, or tax advice or any form of endorsement or suggestion. Crypto has risks, and you alone are responsible for doing your research and making your own decisions. Hey, Chris. Hey, Nicholas. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Hello, Nicholas. Hey, Chris. Hey, George. Hey, George. Hey, Chris. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. How are you doing, Nicholas? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk all about ghost logs and everything you've been working on. Awesome. We're super excited and stoked to, to share what we've been building as well. So I guess just to start off, uh, maybe people aren't familiar with you, but uh, Chris Chang, George Datskos, um, maybe you could explain a little bit about what it is about blockchain that got you excited in the first place. Uh, maybe George, you want to go first, then we'll go to Chris. Uh, sure, I can kind of give you my background uh, as well and start from there. Um, so yeah, great. after graduating from college, I moved from Berkeley to Tokyo to work at a Japanese multinational called Fujitsu. If you're not familiar, it's kind of like the IBM of Japan. Uh, spent a few years there working on uh, distributed storage and data processing. And then I worked at a couple of different startups building consumer products, uh, still in Japan at that point. I ended up becoming a tech lead and helped build out uh, the engineering team. Ultimately, those two startups got acquired and I moved back to the US after like uh, about a decade in Japan. I moved back to San Francisco, worked with a friend who was starting a, a new startup. Uh, and then there I met Chris in San Francisco. Uh, he kind of blockchain pilled me, showed me like what's possible. I kind of had not been aware of that world before. I uh, ended up doing MEV with Chris. Uh, we scaled our on-chain trading infrastructure to about 150 blockchain nodes. Our edge was mostly based on latency. So the more nodes we had, uh, the better latency we had. So we did MEV for a while and then decided uh, about the same time together with Chris, we're like, well, what if we can contribute more by building actual products that create real value for users? And both of us have backgrounds in creating and building products. So it's kind of a good fit. Uh, so that's how we kind of transitioned from you know, doing Web 2 to doing MUV uh, to then doing Web 3 products. And the first thing we built was Snow Genesis. But I'll let Chris kind of give us a background before we talk about that. Great. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> well, great, great introduction. Thanks, George. Um, so my background isn't actually a traditional one, um, as I wasn't always a software engineer. So initially, I worked as an international student advisor at UC Berkeley before transitioning into a software engineer role. You know, as a software engineer, I worked at N Amazon Web Services on Kinesis, which involved data streaming. After two startups later, I got into crypto and met George in San Francisco, where we collaborated on Long Tail and EV, and we have been building products ever since. <laughs> that's a great background. I, I think that's uh, super inspiring to people because so often we just get really, you know, driven into us that you have to go to some elite uh, computer science education in order to get involved in the space or just in general to be really good at building technology products. So it's interesting to hear your story is not conventional. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was learning about uh, computer science, um, you know, as a psychology student, I was like, okay, I could not do this, but I imagine <laughs> a world where, you know, 
the skill that I've acquired to allow me to build products similar to blockchain, like seeing the future, what it would be like had I had these skills. And uh, yeah, excited to have this journey and finally land on crypto and be able to build products like Snow Genesis um, to you know, create value for users. Wow. Uh, and George, you mentioned uh, just before we jump into Snow Genesis and then uh, Ghost Logs, um, the MEV uh, projects that you worked on, having 150 nodes, why Why is it advantageous to have so many nodes? Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, so we were actually doing MEV on the Binance Smart Chain, which was all about Mempool. So it's kind of before, we're during Flashbots, but Flashbots was only on Ethereum mainnet. Uh, so there's no way to pay like a priority auction fee. Uh, to create bundles. So everything had to be direct to mempool. It was like the most MVP environment uh, you can think of. So in order to be fast in MEV on, on those kind of chains, you have to be very quick to first of all, learn about a transaction and then propagate your transaction. And the more nodes you have, the more likely you are to hear about a transaction first. And the more nodes you have, the more likely you are to be able to propagate it and connect to validator centuries. And so those nodes are also geographically distributed, I assume? Exactly. That's interesting. And in the BSC space, um, I don't know if people are just familiar with Ethereum before Flashbots. Is it sort of how it is, or are there different properties that, that made it a different experience? Um, Ethereum before Flashbots is probably think similar to what Binance Smart Chain was like. Uh, basically, everything was about a priority gas auction. So if you see uh, people who are doing, for example, sandwiching, we were not, but people who are, uh, they'd have to see a transaction that they want to send something before and then something after. They'd have to send a little bit of a higher gas fee to go first. And this in the same gas fee of the transaction to go after it. And those would all go through the mempool. Uh, and as you know, party gas auctions cause a lot of spam. Uh, there's unnecessary trans transaction fees. And I think those are some of the reasons that Flashbots kind of came about, you know, as well as offering the ability to do confidential transactions. Um, but yeah, the, the, quite a bit different world from pre-Flashbots to post-Flashbots. Uh, but we were only doing MEV on uh, Binance Smart Chain, which didn't have that concept at all. And it was all all mempool. Wow. And I guess that must have been, I mean, it had a lot of uh, traffic and a lot of volume. It must have been pretty competitive, even relative to other chains. Uh, it was, yeah, very much. There were some very, very <laughs> strong teams. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So after that, you moved on to doing uh, Snow Genesis, which I think you did a few projects before arriving at Ghost Logs, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we done Snow Genesis, which is our first NFT lending aggregator on Ethereum. At the time, really, we wanted to build a product after this NEV PVP world. Uh, so they will provide value for users. And based on our research and personal experience in NFT lending, we realized that the data is so fragmented. That as a lender and a borrower, you had to go through each protocol just to find listings and offers. <laughs> um, the thing is that and nobody got time for that. So we decided <laughs> to take matter into our own hands to build out the first NFT lending aggregator. You know, we grew from just, you know, two of us using the product to now uh, thousands of monthly active users and just celebrated our first year anniversary last year in November. Wow, that's great. So it's an aggregator. Does it also offer the functionality of a protocol for lending NFTs or it's just aggregating existing products? Yes. So for Snow Genesis, we are just a data provider that allowing them to have the data aggregator in a centralized place. Um, yeah, we don't provide the execution layer. Got it. Interesting. Okay, so if people, that won't be the focus of our conversation, but if people are interested, snowgenesis.com can check it out. I guess what's the, the best application is just if you're trying to take out a loan on an NFT that it might be useful for you? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So if you're a borrower, say you want to borrow against your Apache Penguin, for instance, then you'll come to our platform and essentially look at um, the offers from various protocols and then figure out which one you want to do. And you can go to their website directly. Um, and we are on bias platform, which means that we don't charge anything from anyone. So we are... Um, yeah, we just provide the data as it is, and no one can like promote their um, information on our site. I see. Is there a paid uh, function at all, or does it generate any revenue? No, this is a public good, essentially. Wow, we got to get you into the optimism round next time or something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we haven't. We didn't apply on. Um, but yeah, next time. Sounds great. Okay, and then uh, having built Snow Genesis, did uh, your work lead directly to Ghost Logs, or were there other things you experimented with in between? Yeah, it actually directly um, influenced Ghost Log, actually, because while we, we were building Snow Genesis, we noticed a lot of integration uh, were dependent on missing or incomplete smart contract event logs, right? So that this meant that we had to leverage low-level traces and other techniques to piece the puzzle together. For example, uh, a blend contract, uh, blend by blur, uh, which is NFT lending protocols, they're pretty gas-efficient. However, um, there are definitely events like parameter that are missing. So what we had to do, we had to uh, you know, listen on certain events, like repay event, and then retroactively figure out when the loan was borrowed, uh, who, who were the borrower, lenders, uh, amount, etc. And then if there's any renegotiation in between, we also have to piece those puzzles together as well. And finally arriving in this um, full blockchain data state. Um, and we realized so, that- so you, would, you would do that by simulating a transaction? So yeah, so we actually built our own data pipeline and indexer um, to make that happen. And so you you would be reverse engineering the data that was missing that wasn't emitted from the events that you would need in order to consume or interact with the protocol, uh, and you'd be doing that by running like a local fork, or how exactly? Oh, so for this particular case um, where there was an event being emitted, but it just didn't contain all the parameters that we needed, um, the alternative is to find the original start, and then we have the repay, and you can kind of reconcile that way. Along the way, mm. you would find all the refinances where the borrower changes. Uh, in the first start of the loan, we'll have the borrower and lender uh, set the rate, uh, but those might change along the way. So you have to kind of reconcile it by looking at historical events. You might have to do like an ETH call to get certain parameters at that at that block when the transaction occurred. Um, and that's why we thought, wouldn't there be a better way if I can we can just have exactly the events that we want if we can modify this contract? Because going back to our MEV days, uh, we did have like state overrides that are already possible to do in all the all the execution clients, right? They have a way to say, okay, what if I could change uh, the balance or the bytecode for this account and then re-execute it? So at that time, we were not re-simulating them, but we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could? So I love it. You guys are not afraid of getting into the guts of the prior transaction history. And I suppose that comes from this willingness to do things like MEV, where you're really looking very closely at the chain's history before acting. And the requirements of that sort of showed you what's missing in the events that were emitted by protocols that you wanted to interact with. Yeah, exactly. We were like all about like data processing on on EVM uh, because of our MVV history, as you said, and also we do have both have backgrounds in you know ETL and data processing and building out distributed uh, storage and, and and processing pipelines. So it's kind of our bread and butter. Um, but we also thought that this is kind of a lot of work to get this done, 
And we realized a lot of people probably have the same problems. And we're like, well, what if there's a better way to do this? And out of that came ghost logs. So if we can just state it simply, like what's wrong with events as they are written in protocols or as events are described in the EVM, what's missing from events that needs to be fixed for people doing the kinds of things you were trying to do? I would say there's there's a couple of different things. Uh, the first thing is that in events, um, there are no real rules for, for events. Basically, anybody can write an event in a contract that emits whatever they like. It doesn't actually reflect, reflect reality, right? So to know what actually happened, you have to look at what is actually changing on chain, like what state is changing. And typically, there's the social pressure of making sure those actually are correct, uh, but they don't have to be, right? So certain protocols may have unintentionally written wrong events that don't reflect what actually happened. So being able to go in and reconcile that as a third party is super important. The ability to do that. The other thing is before, events, before you jump to the next one, a classic example of that is originally OpenSea's transaction history was dependent on events, and people would deploy NFT contracts that emitted fake, falsified events, saying that I don't know, for example, a famous artist minted an, this NFT to somebody else, and then now it's on sale for a really low price. Why wouldn't you buy it if it's such a reputable artist when in fact that event was fatuous? Exactly. That's a big problem on, uh, especially like block explorers, they show those or they used to show them as if they were true, like exactly like you said, uh, because they trusted events, right? You see the transfer from and to, I trust that actually was sent. I want to actually just fabricated, like you said. Uh, so big problem like like spam and also scam scams that happen uh, because sometimes people trust them. But now people have learned that events are not actually reality. They cannot be trusted. So, so there we have examples of like, if you're going to be displaying blockchain data to users who maybe aren't quite as deep in the stack, like if you have a website like OpenSea or something like that, or uh, Snow Genesis, for example, needs to be careful about this kind of thing. You might not want to just directly trust the events that are emitted, even if they are containing all the information you need, they may not be accurate. So that's one thing. And then also the MEV use case where, again, if the if the events are not accurate, you don't want to be trusting them when making decisions about trading plays you're going to be making. Exactly. Very good point. There was an article a couple of years ago about um, some MEV bots that were kind of basing their simulation results on the transfer events, I think. And then those were actually not correct. They were mm -hmm. misleading the, the bots and they lost a lot of money um, by not looking at the actual balances. Scary. All right, I cut you off. You were about to say another uh, reason. <laughs> um, the other reason is, let's say you have the most perfect event schemas, you have exactly the events that you need for someone to reconstruct the current and past state of your protocol. Uh, even then, there's also the, uh, the problem of cost, right? Because when I write events into a contract um, and then people execute on that contract with transactions, they have to pay fees, gas fees, to emit those events. So typically we'll see roughly about 5% of transactions, the fee is going towards gas. So like a $20 swap right now on Uniswap is about a dollar being spent on gas, on, sorry, on gas fees just for the event logs. And if you look over the last mm. three years, it's been about $600 million has been spent on these logs, right? And then the people paying for them are not usually the ones that benefit from them. Most people don't even know that they're generating events and paying for them. Right. I guess we should rewind just in case there's anyone listening who has never written a customer contract or never interacted with one directly. An event is just something that you can, uh, it's like a log that you can emit in the course of a transactions execution on any EVM. And as we were alluding to previously, the events uh, contents can be decided by or are decided by the author of the contract and can be completely arbitrary. You could just say, every time you transfer my NFT, we're going to emit the number one. Or you could emit the name, you know, the token ID of the uh, NFT and who the recipient is and who the sender is. Or you could emit any arbitrary thing you want. 
so this leads to all the sort of that's the premise for for what we're talking about. So you're saying that the uh, this like second or third problem is that the gas burden is put onto the interactor with the contracts when really mm, maybe it, the events can't really be trusted and they're not the ones benefiting from them. So maybe there's there's another place that we could displace the the burden for paying for the event emission. Exactly. Or or even remove it entirely, I suppose. Right. I think we don't like necessarily recommend that everybody rec- you know start removing all their critical events. Uh, but we do think that now people can be empowered to decide what events they want to have on-chain and what events they want to have running in an off-chain context, which is not going to incur fees to the end users. Because I guess the nuance there is that the events can be useful, but uh, especially if you are the one authoring the contract and consuming them, then you can trust them. Or I guess if you know the contract, if you take a look at the contract source code and you believe that it's trustworthy, then even if you're not the original author, you can still trust those events. But Mm -hmm. the events themselves are not available within the context of a transaction to the transaction itself. Right. As far as, far exactly. as I know, or at least for the most part. So the events that are being emitted are not stored on chain. They're not being used by subsequent transactions. They're not relevant to your balance. And so far as the contract is aware of it, they're just something that is emitted one time during the transaction and then consumed off chain. So it, I guess, what would the reason be for keeping events at all? Why should we not just be doing all events off chain? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there are a couple of reasons. One, uh, you did mention that events are not accessible on chain. Uh, while they're not directly accessible to the transaction, I think there are some interesting protocols that use the fact that an event happened and create a ZK proof that that happened. And I think they're called like ZK mm. coprocessors. And you can prove, hey, this was actually emitted at this time uh, because there is something called like a receipt uh, hash. And then you can prove that it occurred, and then you can verify that on chain, and then take an action based on that. So a, a little bit um, early stage, at least. I don't think most people are using events that way today. It definitely, it's definitely early stage, uh, but it is a little bit of a reason why you'd want to not necessarily remove everything that happened on chain. The other reason why you might want to keep some events are, you know, some of the infrastructure, like what we're building, and the products and tooling are still very early. Uh, so especially if you're building like a token, right, and you take out the transfer event, that might make it very difficult for people to calculate their taxes, um, you know, especially if you're in the U.S. and you have to record all your capital uh, gains and losses, uh, which is for every every transfer, essentially, you're going to need to to be able to account for that. Uh, so there, I mean, there are very good reasons why you still want to not necessarily remove the critical events. Uh, because a lot of the ecosystem kind of relies on them at this point, right? And we're trying to kind of build in the direction where now you have the option to choose which events you can keep and which events you can put off-chain while still being verifiable and accessible to people. Uh, but it's still early days, and we're, we're trying very hard to make that accessible. I guess ERC-20, 721, 1155, they all, do they do they specify that you must emit an event as well? Or is it just a common practice that people are doing that? I'm not sure. Uh, I believe that's required by the standard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the MEV days, you might be modifying contracts in order to emit data that's more convenient for you in your own custom events that are being generated on your local fork uh, in order to take uh, decisions about what you would be, what transactions you would be executing subsequently. Is that the primary application you see or what other kinds of applications do you have in mind for how people might use this? Uh, yeah, very good point. So I think that some of the main use cases are the people who are consuming these events are people like analysts, researchers, or anyone who's creating like an index for their DApp. And typically, if the events are not included, they have to, as Chris was talking about, like come up with all these like workarounds to figure out what happened on chain. Uh, and usually the events are the easiest way to, to do that, right? So now if you can add them after the fact, anybody can come in and say, okay, in this function, this happened, let me add an event. Then I can query that event directly from, we integrate with like Dune and Flipside, and you can query it from there and you can construct 
the history of that, right? So having access to mm -hmm. those new events is like super empowering to to consumers of that of those contracts. Um, whether you're analyzing, researching, or if you're building like an index, and now like maybe for example, Ambient Finance doesn't have any events, but we added swap events to our local fork, and now we have access to all those, and we can reconstruct the state. Got it. So maybe could you take me through what from a dev perspective? How do I actually do ghost logs? How does it work? Yeah, I can briefly talk about this. So as a developer you or analyst, you come to our platform and you essentially create this thing called Ghost Fork. And that essentially is um, a fork of your the blockchain, mainnet blockchain. And inside of the fork, you can uh, include any contract, any modified contract that you want. Uh, we call it a ghost contract. And, and then Inside the ghost contract, you're able to modify, um, you know, create new few function, access private variable, or you can and emit event as it's intended. And then after that, you can do simulation based on real transactions. So seeing that, okay, what happened if this transaction on chain currently is piped into this new contract replay with this modified contract? And then you can see the new event being generated. And once you know our users are happy with the simulation, they're able to go to our fork and essentially backfill all the historical data with mo all the modified contracts, so that to generate all the custom guestless events, where we they then can either download CSV file or they can export to Flipside or Doom Analytics and start generating the query, um, join with their native tables, and then essentially publish the dashboard to share with the world. And then that that is just for the analytical use case. For the operational side, you can imagine that you know people who want to build a data pipeline will want to use our RPC or WebSocket to subscribe to their custom guestless event logs, and then based on you know the new transaction block coming in, and based on the new event, they can take certain action on it. A really cool thing is that all they don't have, they no longer have to do transformation like in TypeScript. They can write everything in uh, Solidity and Viper, which is something that we're super excited about. That's cool. So, what would they be writing in Solidity or Viper? Yeah, because they can just now instead of listening to on-chain event. Right, like blend. Um, for instance, we have blend contract that's missing some parameter, right? And they're only emitting long ID as well as the collection ID, collection address of NFT. And now you have to do create your own data pipeline um, based on the certain event and retroactively figure out the missing information and building that data pipeline indexer. But with Ghost Law, you no longer have to do that. You just need to go into the actual contract itself, right? And you can write in Solidity to emit that event. And now you don't have to do the crazy transformation in like a language of your choice downstream. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then uh, in the operational context, if you're subscribing to those logs and using them to trigger, I suppose, subsequent logic and then decide that logic deciding if it should take some action on chain, for example, how would you consume the logs in a ongoing like streaming fashion? Yeah, so we create a ghost fork. So it's basically an RPC that tracks the on-chain state changes, takes all the transactions and reruns them with your new bytecode. Right, so your fork basically maps to an RPC node. We'll spin up 
uh, typical ETH underscore methods and the WebSocket make that available. So you can subscribe the same way you do with any other like Alchemy node or your own node. So you can set up a, a bidirectional WebSocket and you can say, okay, give me an event, give me a notification every time that this event is emitted. And then you can take an action, uh, whatever that action is. Hmm. Very cool. So is... Uh, so, so basically, uh, to summarize, you go to the Ghost Logs website, you choose a contract that's deployed to, is it Ethereum or on various EVMs today? Currently, we're on Ethereum mainnet and base. Great. And I suppose over time, if there's demand, more. Exactly. Um, uh, our Arbitrum and Optimism are coming soon. <laughs> cool. Very cool. And then you, it's actually interesting that you haven't done BSC. Uh, is, is the game, has the game changed since back in the day? Uh, it's changed quite a bit. And also, like, I would say, one thing I would say is that, like, the chain you might use as a user versus the chain you might use as a trader slash MEV bot are, like, different for me personally. And I do feel that, like, a lot of the interesting protocols and apps are these days on L2s and the L2 ecosystem is, like, I think a lot of things are moving or developing there in a very exciting mm-hmm. way. For sure. And being compatible with both Arbitrum and the Optimism stack mm-hmm. will open up many, many doors. Although I suspect the volume on BSC is probably still higher than most of those. It does LTs. still have the incredible uh, swap volume. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting because you do. it does seem like, uh, at least uh, maybe personally, motiva- motivationally wise or directionally for the future, you're more interested in where developer attention is rather than trader attention exactly. uh, for the product, at least at this stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting new consumer apps coming uh, on board now that kind of the infrastructure is either there or developing in a a very positive way and just kind of really excited to kind of help that happen and decouple Mm -hmm. like event emission from gas costs because right now they're very coupled and when you're thinking about what you can emit to show what's going on in your contract, you're kind of restricted by gas costs and the ability to decouple that, we're very excited about making helping make that possible. I guess if you go service the trading volume uh, direction, maybe historical chains is more for inserting events such that you're able to take MEV style trading actions, but looking forward to all the new kinds of things that are coming out, it may even have a fundamental influence on how the contracts are written in the first place. That's a very good point, yeah. I just wanted to run through summarizing how it works. So you go to the website, you choose the contract you want to fork, you create new events or modify how the contract works. Are you limited to changing the event emissions or can you change other things about the contract too? Oh yeah, so the cool thing is you can also add custom view functions. So when you create a fork, and you can create multiple forks that are, for example, I can have like an NFT finance fork that has like NFT Fi, Arcade, Blend, and it has kind of, they're collected together because they're similar uh, in what they're doing. And then I can add view functions, right? Like if the view, view functions don't exist or I have to do like five different calls to, to do one thing, now I can do it in one call, right? And all that logic can happen uh, in the VM itself. Uh, which is like super powerful for like dApps, right? Like if you're trying to, you know, call a bunch of different methods from a d- bunch of different uh, contracts, now you can write it all in one place and you get exactly the data you want in the format that you want. It's very cool. It does seem, it sort of uh, echoes uh, the transition of some part of the industry to using Forge and thinking in this solidity centric mindset where you're doing local, I mean, of course, Hardhat and others could do this too, but forking locally and maybe even modifying the contracts such that you can simplify things to make, you know, to customize the contract in such a way that it's convenient to your use case that might not have made any sense for the original developers in the way that they deployed it for gas efficiency or whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly. Like I think we want to do for like indexing and data what Forge and Founder did for testing. Like the idea that you can run your data pipeline in the same language that the contract was written in is like a super powerful and empowering thing, right? Because you don't have to rewrite and have two versions of something, right? You don't have to have the solidity logic and your math and logic written and elsewhere. It can all be one place and you can make those transforms directly where they're emitted. And like 
that just makes things a lot easier downstream. Mm -hmm. As a more solidity minded developer myself, it's I completely uh, vibe with this, although I have heard people who are more comfortable in the Web3 front end world describe things like hard hat tests being useful because they can be recycled as front end logic or at least demonstrate front end logic for uh, front end integration ultimately. So I guess the writing in solidity or Viper makes sense if you are intending to do actions on chain from the perspective of like, for example, the MEV case is a pretty clear one because you're, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe, maybe you're interacting with it, not in solidity, but you're at least spinning up solidity transactions as your primary point of interaction. Mm -hmm. But I guess if you're creating a front end, then maybe even being in JS or TS is not an obstacle because that's where you're going to end up eventually. What, what do you think makes it make sense to be working in solidity for, I suppose it's because you're mutating the contracts themselves. Um, so while you're not mutating the state, you are mutating your view of that state. And the idea that you can emit new events that were not there before uh, is super powerful for indexers and backends. But also the fact that you can add new view functions means you can move some of your logic that previously was in your front end. Maybe now it can live in the contract fork itself. So even though you're not paying for that on chain, you can spin it up and it'll be there in the ghost fork that we spin for you. Mm. So you, maybe your sprint can be a lot simpler now. Right, right. And you can, as a protocol developer or... I don't know if there's a word for this, but the kind of thing you're doing at Snow Genesis, for example, where you're observing other protocols and aggregating them and maybe making these kind of intermediary view functions that simplify the creation of the front end, uh, but are not executed on chain, whatever that in-between role might be, that can, if you understand how the protocol works, then you can really simplify the front end development uh, or whatever kind of interaction development endpoint you're creating for users or uh, other developers within your organization. So that, that makes sense. Exactly. Like I think that... Our view of what we're building that goes beyond ghost logs, we think of it like the whole ghost ecosystem, is that we're trying to build like data availability substrates for blockchains. So making it really, really simple to add observability without incurring costs on chain. So the first product mm -hmm. of the, on that journey is ghost logs, which like you were kind of hinting at being an overlay network on top of existing blockchains. And now you can plug in those gasless logs and those free view functions and run them in this off-chain environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in a way, it's a little bit uh, in the same ballpark as the graph, potentially. I think there's a lot of interesting um, compatibility there because imagine if you can take a ghost fork that has all your new events that previously you might have to do an ETH call during your transform step. Now you can add them as events and you can plug that into like the graph and your transform, your graph transforms can be so much simpler and faster because now you're mm -hmm. operating on events that did happen on chain and events that didn't happen on chain, but do reflect state transitions. And you'll be able to spin up that index much more efficiently. Great developer experience. And also we'll think it's going to be a lot faster uh, end to end to re-index. Makes a lot of sense. So go to the website, choose the contract, fork it, uh, create a, this ghost uh, version of the contract, insert whatever view functions or changes to the events that are emitted that you want, simulate new transactions. Then if you're happy with it, you can backfill all the old events and da either download or integrate with Flipside or Dune. If I wanted to, I guess it's probably not there yet, of course, but if I wanted to do something like have a uh, subgraph based on this. It, it, where is this being run? Is it running on my local machine or it's in the cloud somewhere? Uh, so first of all, as we know, it's been up the RPC for you. And then you can run subgraph yourself or you can use the decentralized subgraph uh, graph no, graph protocol, or you can use one of the centralized hosts like uh, Gold Sky or Alchemy. So you really can just do this today because you're you're just generating a regular RPC interface. You can do it today. You can do it today for some of the hosts. I, I know that Gold Sky lets you put in a custom RPC. Uh, I don't know if Alchemy does, but I think eventually they will mm -hmm. when they see the the power of like these kind of off chain execution environments. 
And that RPC, the ghost RPC, is something that you run in the cloud? Uh, yes, currently it's, it's centralized. Um, so we can like ensure some uh, latency requirements, some throughput requirements. We're able to do all sorts of optimizations, especially with how we backfill very efficiently in a scale. Uh, but we do see eventually there will be an open source uh, reference implementation that anybody can run uh, to verify that what, has, what we're actually outputting is actually correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think for most people's applications, uh, verifying that it's correct or having trust in that it's correct is more important than being able to run it themselves, most likely. I guess unless they reach a certain kind of scale. It's just the uh, efficiency of that is pretty good for testing, or at least for getting the product mm-hmm. uh, into people's hands quickly. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, we almost touched on this topic, and we should return to it, that the existence of things like ghost logs, and there's also this other company, Shadow, that's working in a similar uh, vein of rethinking how events uh, work, that these techniques can ultimately potentially leak out and maybe even excitingly leak out into how the protocols are designed in the first place, maybe not completely obviating events, but changing how developers think about what they need to put into an event if they know that they can save their users some gas and make their their protocol cheaper to use and maybe even change how people, you know, maybe even provide way more convenience functionality for view functions if they do so off-chain entirely. How do you think it might affect uh, how protocols are designed in the future? Yeah, I say first of all, like I think it's great uh, to have the this ERC seven five seven one. It's kind of a, a starting point for like the community and ecosystem to align on what it means to have like this off-chain set of events, these off-chain view functions, uh, and then specify them in a compatible way, right? Where the, all the tooling can benefit from, and there can be like a consistent way people can specify those, and then be those those can be consumed, right? Um, so it makes a lot of sense to have one way of doing that. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm excited that Shadow has done the, the, some of the work there to help start that process. Could you, could you describe seven five seven one a little bit for folks who aren't familiar? Uh, sure. So the core idea is that. You want to have something that's compatible, backwards compatible, while signaling as the protocol creator what you'd like to have emitted in this off-chain world. So the way they have it right now is you can go in and you can create a off-chain block. They call it a shadow block. We're not too stoked on the naming of enshrining your product name <laughs> into the syntax, um, but we do hope that they will consider calling it an off-chain block or a gasless block instead of a shadow block. Mm. And in there, you would put all sorts of logic. For example, they could be view functions, uh, they could be event emissions, and also the calculations and calls necessary to construct the parameters that you want to emit. Because if we think about an event emission, sometimes you have to calculate something to emit something, right? Maybe you're calculating the debt of a loan oh. that was repaid and that was not previously accessible to a specific function. Maybe it was oh, elsewhere. Maybe now you calculate it. So you have a block that does all sorts of logic. You can even do external call to, for example, a chain link oracle, get the current price of an asset, and then emit all that. Uh, so then existing nodes and infrastructure will not be impacted because these blocks will be, for in the first version of it, compiled as comments compiled out. So then the bytecode that is emitted and submitted on chain will be consistent with what would be emitted if these blocks were not even there. And then because the comments are there in the source, um, when that source is shared either through the IPFS or through Etherscan, uh, it knows an indexers that care about this can fetch it and then they can run those off-chain blocks, process mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's interesting. So, so this is more, so 7571 more addresses the latter example that we were discussing about it really having a large influence on how protocols are designed and for gas efficiency and supplementary convenience event emission uh, so that you put all of the 
events that you might want to, someone might want to have access to, to interact or understand your protocol in the comments, but you don't ever emit any of them. But it's still from the perspective of more the original author of the contract. It's not so much about adding things subsequent to the deployment. Exactly. I think there's some benefits there to like signaling benefits, right? The contract author and set of people who created it are typically in one of the best positions to surface what they think is most important. Um, maybe not critical enough to be on chain, but maybe important enough to represent certain state changes. Uh, and then signaling that and then people being able to bootstrap on top of that is like pretty powerful. Uh, but as you were kind of starting to mention, the ability for other people to also do that, like a third party, um, is also very, very interesting. Yeah, there's really no um, like shelling point, meta textual uh, shelling point for talking about contracts yet, it seems. There's no, there's no canonical other place to see what other people have said or thought or <laughs> commented or added to a given contract. It seems like that could be a useful addition to just having the uh, hashed, uh, you know, verifiable source source code for the contract itself from the original author. I think it's a great starting point to be able to share what the original author had. Uh, but like things like sharing and discovery are going to be very, very, very important for something like this to really take off. Uh, because then you can kind of have the same thing that platforms like Dune and Flipside have for data analysis, you can now have for protocols themselves. You can look at what other people have written and maybe maybe mm -hmm. trust the people in the community and say, okay, here's my version of, you know, Alvay V3 has all these extra events that I think are important. And then you can bootstrap on top of those and you can build your products and you can take those forks that people have built and you can import them into your own fork uh, and then maybe add changes on top of it. Uh, but like having ability to share and discover, uh, we think we're very excited about releasing this soon. Yeah, what, what's the state of the art with that right now? I guess subgraphs are one way that people do that. Dune is another, but uh, I suppose the queries themselves are visible, even if the product itself is centralized. So you can build on top of other people's ideas there in some ways. Uh, what, what do you think of as the kind of the ways to do this today? Um, so yeah, I think th those are like great ways that people are already doing them, uh, sharing source code, sharing queries um, on like Dune, sharing the subgraphs on platforms like what we have. Uh, currently, everything is kind of siloed to a specific customer. So I come in and my forks are private to me. Uh, but very soon, we're going to open up the option to make those public, right? And I can make them public in the context of a single fork or multiple forks. And then a fork will have all these different contracts. It'll have all my edits. And then the community will be able to see those, maybe rate them, maybe say, okay, I really like this. And you can start creating kind of like social layer on top of it um, because not everybody maybe wants to look at every single detail, but if they can say, okay, hey, I trust these people. These people have written these great edits. I can then import them into my fork or I can use their fork directly. Then you start to create kind of an ecosystem around it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think it might actually be uh, more timely to do the complement to uh, 7571 and instead go backwards from the consumption of the protocols. Rather, I mean, it might take longer to convince people to change how they write their protocols in the first place than it would take to convince people like MEV traders or interface builders who want convenient ways to write their own little view function, solidity view function, uh, but in a way that's not tied to a specific thing. And may maybe there, you could imagine some additional file that you import or library or something in a local fork that's not uh, even specific to ghost logs, but instead something that people could just be trading in order to do exactly what you're talking about. I guess today, because today most of them are pretty specific to the platform or the architecture, be it the graph or Dune or Flipside, it would be cool to see people sharing way, new ways of consuming existing protocols, especially really complicated ones like Blur or Blend you were mentioning. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, because as you said, as you said, like this doesn't require the initial developers to do it. Anyone in the community can come up with their own view of Blur or Blend and then share that. And then you can, like you said, go backwards 
Uh, and then maybe me in the middle as 7571 comes from the protocol route and then we come from this kind of creator route and then eventually everything is uh, possible to do either on-chain or off-chain. Mm-hmm. Or I said blur, but I meant Seaport. But yeah, there's so many protocols where it requires, or like I remember working on Juicebox protocol, that in order to retrieve the data, in order to pass an argument that has several complicated structs, you need to go traverse so many contracts in order to get that data. If someone could just write a single function in order to do that for you, that would simplify the life of everybody thereafter. Very good point. I was also kind of looking at the very original Seaport, like the Wyvern uh, contract event emissions, and they were very, very tricky to to figure out what actually happened. Uh, and being able to edit the code was kind of the most ergonomic way of doing that. Uh, and then being able yeah, to share I've, that. I've heard that. Yeah. I, you can imagine people like, uh, I don't know, I'm thinking of like Reservoir or other people who provide aggregating indexing services or even Snow Genesis for looking at these things might prefer to do a public goods version where sure it's useful for them, but why not let other people consume it? It's not really a moat to be able to, or it ought not at least be a moat to be able to understand how protocols work, mm-hmm. uh, even though maybe in some cases it is. I absolutely, I agree with that. Um, like a public goods version of a lot of these protocols um, will be super impactful. Yeah, you could also imagine if there was a standardized kind of way to do this, that the protocols themselves might even subsidize grants or other things in order to get it uh, to make their protocols more legible. Yeah, And it, it is also nice to, because it does seem like in the current state of affairs, it, it, you, there is this awkwardness in the smart contract authoring where you're writing a line between legibility makes it easier to audit, easier to understand, and more accessible for extensions to be built on top of, but at the expense of gas and maybe even just design efficiency, if you really understand how it works, you don't really need it to be legible for your own purposes. Yeah, absolutely. So as you can imagine that, you know, blockchain is kind of a small contract, it's kind of unforgiven, uh, where before deployment, you actually have to figure out what even logs you want to emit. And once it's deployed, it's done, unless you're using mm-hmm. proxy contract, of course. But, you know, you can imagine that you can't really know every future analytical need. Uh, of a specific protocol. And so Ghost Law provides you an alternative way to like retroactively add new events as you see fit. And I think this is super powerful as, you know, in comparison to Web2, you know, where if you miss some front end tracking, back end tracking, you just add them. It's not a big deal. And however, blockchain is not the case. <laughs> Yeah, you're totally right. It reminds me of, um, there's this ERC-4906, uh, which is a 721 metadata update extension. I, I think that's the right one, where uh, you can Im- emit an event if the metadata changes in your NFT contract in order to queue like a refresh of the cache for OpenSea's uh, metadata caching, for example. But the problem is that the event needs to be in the 721 contract itself. Your 721 NFT needs to implement it. So all prior NFTs cannot do this. Uh, because it's over. So something like a standard around how to augment the legibility for read-only applications like ghost logs, especially if standardized in a way where it's uh, something people can really feel that they're contributing to a public good by annotating them in this way, could make something like 4906 achievable for even the whole history of NFT contracts. Yeah, I like like that a lot. Like the idea of like a retroactive uh, 4906 uh, annotate at the metadata update event. Would be great. And and someone like OpenSea would love it because they don't need to go and mm-hmm. 
you know, refresh their cache over everything, even if nothing has changed. Uh, if the, if uh, if a developer or even just a friendly person in the community uh, augments a contract retroactively with a four nine zero six post facto ghost, whatever you call it, ghost fork, then uh, it, it even reduces maybe the computational load on them. If if they can get some assurance that it's an accurate implementation, then it maybe even makes their their backend more efficient would be interesting. So lots of lots of interesting applications of this stuff. I guess we, we sort of touched on it. But uh, one question I had was how devs should think about non standard non EIP modifications to how solidity and the EVM work. I mean, we talked about uh, 7571, which is is a, in progress official way of going about things. But um, I mean, in practice, devs are always doing like local forks of things. They're messing with libraries that they're importing from Open Zeppelin or whomever because it's missing something they need or in some other way is not ergonomic. Maybe those are things that they're not going to ship in production, but they're very useful for testing or understanding or building some part of their stack. I'm curious if you just have any thoughts on how Ghost Logs plays uh, or sits in this field of like uh, the praxis of mucking about in the EVM and trying to get things done versus the kind of standardized, you should emit an event uh, with all the data that you need, uh, but you're locked into it once the contract is deployed. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. It's a good question. I think, yeah, I think if you look beyond standardization, you know, it's very free what you can do, especially with these things like Ghostworks, you can add events any way that you you see fit. I think, yeah, without standardization, it's kind of like a free-for-all. We, we don't necessarily have specific recommendations beyond we think it's not a good idea to remove events in your ghost fork because then it can make it can be really challenging you know it's because you no longer have the main net changes plus your changes so we typically recommend to add to be additive right to to add new events instead of modifying existing ones uh, that's kind of the main thing that we recommend uh, anyone who's, who's kind of messing with uh, events mm-hmm. um do you think that this is, to me, it seems like maybe there is an ideological battle about doing things like uh, ghost events or off-chain events because people are exactly afraid of the non-standardization or making it difficult to understand what you're looking at because each contract will no longer be abiding by the kind of conventions that we've been familiar with. But it also seems like it's maybe evidence that the EVM solidity uh, and the chains that use these things are maturing and that it's time for more efficient ways of interacting with uh, the blockchain. Is that, uh, does that resonate with you? Yes. Yeah, like a very interesting thing because like, if you look at like the history of, for example, JavaScript, which may not be everyone's favorite language, but is now kind of the de facto language for web, um, you know, built in like, I think what, like 10 days, um, the original language. And then now it's like everywhere, right? All the browsers have it. So even if you may not like it, like it's kind of what people have to use. Uh, and, you know, maybe people don't love Solidity and Viper, but it is the de facto language for EVM. Although I am seeing like some interesting developments from like, you know, Arbitrum and Stylus and being able to write your contracts in any language that you like that has Wasm support compile it down to this very efficient runtime. Uh, and this, I, do, I do see this as kind of being kind of maybe the next iteration of on-chain. Um, much cheaper to do to do logic, to run execution. Although I I don't know what will happen with like L1s if, if they're going to have this option. Probably not for, for a very long time. But some of these like L2s will give you, you know, new ways of, of, of thinking about things and new ways of, of writing contracts. But yeah, just very exciting times and we kind of want to be able to support people to build things, whether or not they initially thought about it, retroactively be able to add new events and also kind of empower them to do things efficiently with the tools that currently exist. 
um, while also keeping an eye on these new tools. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. It's an interesting pressure because you would think something like maybe like compiling to Wasm to deploy on chain would be something that the most elite developers in the ecosystem would be most interested in, uh, who are the most experienced in other languages and other kinds of concepts that are not available in Solidity or Viper. But the uh, non-availability of that most likely for the longest time on something like EVM also means that, or on Ethereum, I should say, is maybe, you know, the, the most experienced developers who are writing the most mission critical code are maybe writing their protocols for Ethereum also, or, or even primarily. And so to maybe it, put, it leaves the these custom language or alternate language options for deploying code to blockchains in an awkward position right now because the developers who might be most likely to use them are, will not have the access to them if they're writing for ethereum and only these kind of at least right now fanciful uh less uh, well-trod chains are have these uh, functionalities available but at the same time it also seems like uh we started off with rollups being a zk design simplified to the optimistic design and then we've been in this period for the last year or so of the explosion of the popularity of optimistic rollups um which are sort of uh e easy to use because they are fully evm equivalent um, but in the long stretch of time, it seems obvious that the coolest things you can do with L2s would be to not be anything like the EVM. And simultaneously, we have Eigenlayer proposing a world in which maybe the EVM and the security affordances of the stake uh, for the ETH stake are separated uh, such that maybe you have a completely different virtual machine than the EVM, but backed by the same kind of security model, potentially. Uh, so a lot of interesting things going on with the uh, alternate possibilities and uh, forking futures. Yeah, like I think the network effects of things like Solidity and EVM are just so powerful. That, like you said, if you're building uh, something that needs to be multi-chain, right, it needs to run a multi, like especially in this kind of new L2 slash multi-chain world, then you either have to have two versions of it, right, which introduce all sorts of other issues, or you need to just write it in the de facto language, right? But perhaps for new apps or new protocols that are only targeting these new VMs, uh, then you know I see those as being kind of the fresh upstarts that will choose whatever language or whatever framework works best for them. Yeah, it, it does. It does feel like it's possible that Solidity is JavaScript uh, mm -hmm. for this era. It's it's believable at least. Uh, but that kind of brings me to another question, which is, uh, I mean, we've talked only about the EVM, but there's been a lot of buzz about Solana lately. There's all kinds of other chains and other languages, different L2 configurations, Celestia, uh, the Eigen stuff. Uh, do you ever think about those things or are, do you really feel like the network effect that is the surest bet is really the EVM? I do think about them like on a personal level just I, I like to explore these other uh, chains um, however from like a company product building perspective I think it's good for us to kind of focus on at least just one thing for now something we can do really really well make sure we deliver and create actual value uh, before we think about expanding uh, those mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we ran the great gamut around ghost logs but are there other applications or other interesting things that you're working on with ghost, ghost logs or way people might consume it or think about using it that we haven't covered that you think uh, would be interesting for the audience to hear about um so basically as we know ghost logs is kind of like the underlying infra Right, that you can change uh, events and you can change bytecode to run in this off-chain environment. But things we're kind of looking towards now are improving that, but also building some some tooling, some stuff on top of it. Uh, and this is things like like Ghost Query, right? Ghost Query like is a way to query your off-chain events alongside your on-chain events. 
Uh, so integrate with platforms like Dune and Flipside uh, to make that possible. And the second thing we're exploring right now is like Ghostgraph. So we're already kind of excited about the initial experimentation here, super early days, but it's like our take on what would Subgraph look like if it were invented today, right? So like in a post uh, Ghost Logs world, what if you could transform your on-chain plus off-chain events into new entities that you could then query through GraphQL, uh, but like unrestricted um, from having to do things like ETH calls during your transform step. So imagine like a very ergonomic way of doing that uh, right now. Mm, that is interesting. And I know people, uh, as much as they love the graph, also kind of struggle with getting it indexing, writing subgraphs, et cetera. It's a, lot, it's a whole extra step uh, involved in making a production protocol or a smart contract. Uh, do you think this would like reduce the burden to write a subgraph and do all those those steps? I think it'll make things a lot simpler. I think the developer experience can be just a lot, a lot tighter when when you can use events, which are already being used as kind of the baseline for transforms. If you can then put more logic into that step, then the step that comes after that in the subgraph logic can be so much simpler and tighter that you can get up to speed a lot faster, I think, as a, as all these consumer apps kind of come on board. They need to have a backend powered by a, an index that they can just develop very quickly and its performance that we can help empower those use cases. Like instant backends for dApps is something that we are very, very excited about. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I'm at the end of my list of questions. Uh, Chris, I don't know if there was anything else we didn't talk about you thought we should uh, cover or any, any interesting elements that we didn't mention. No, I think we have covered uh, a ton. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Georgia uh, asked you the same question. I don't know if there's anything we didn't cover. Uh, I think it was great. Like, um, yeah, super happy with, you know, um, this interview. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, I think like you have a lot of really great points and it's great to kind of discuss it and show what we're doing. Yeah, it's uh, I'm sure going to be uh, popular with listeners uh, who are curious about what's going on with all this new thinking around uh, off-chain events. If people want to learn more about Ghost Logs, where should they go? Uh, so you can go to ghostlogs.xyz and also we have docs.ghostlogs.xyz for the technical documentation. Great. And where are you uh, co-located? Do you two live in the same area? We are both in Miami. In Miami. Okay, Miami. That's interesting. Um, and is Ghost Logs just the two of you for now? or are you scaling up currently just, just, sorry just, just two of us <laughs> yeah we've been working awesome. for the past uh, few years now together on various products yeah awesome i don't know at least to my knowledge i don't think anyone on the show has had a startup in miami yet so that's interesting what's the uh, what's the scene like there these days you know I've, uh, we moved about two years ago from san francisco uh and at the time it was um we thought it, it, well, FTX happened, so uh, that was kind of kind of like a downturn. But we end up meeting a ton of crypto entrepreneurs down, down here, and we have pretty tight group, which is nice. And we all play uh, paddles together. <laughs> What's so paddles? Paddle is this like a thing between a sport between like tennis and. Pickleball. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> okay, think in between it. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. I'm gonna have to look it up. Super popular here in Miami. <laughs> wow. Okay. Next time I'm in Miami, uh, you're gonna have to show me how to play. Oh, absolutely. All right, Chris, George, this was wonderful, uh, folks. If you're interested, ghostlogs.xyz. Uh, thank you so much for coming through, and thank you for everyone for uh, coming to listen. Talk to you next week. Thanks. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Nicholas. Bye bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Web3 Galaxy Brain. To keep up with everything Web3, follow me on Twitter at Nicholas with four leading ends. You can find links to the topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. 
Podcast feed links are available at web3galaxybrain.com. Web3 Galaxy Brain airs live most Friday afternoons at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2200 UTC on Twitter Spaces. I look forward to seeing you there.